Lord of the Rings, who's, who's fans? Yeah, good a majority in here, great. Lord of the Rings trilogy concluded in 2003 with what movie? Return of the King. Now, obviously, this is a big deal. My wife skipped high school the whole year just to go to that. I'm just kidding. Uh, she skipped a day in high school to go see the final uh, Return of the King, but it was like all the extended versions. She's really cool, all right? And so she went to see this movie in the theaters. Yeah, I know. I'm going to hear that whenever I get home. One way. Um, the ending, however, to this Return of the King was uh, received some serious critique, and here's why. It was too long. It was too long. 27 minutes of an ending for the movie, all right? So you gotta, I got a pick up here for you. So here's like a, a final picture of the fun, one of the final scenes that's happening here. And in trying to close out the trilogy, um, here's what happened, why it's so long. They tried to include too many details, all right? So if you look at some of the critiques of the movie, that some of the ending that they put in here Parts they included weren't even in the original story. They were just in the appendices of the book. And so they just tried to fit in too much. Here's what Billy Crystal at the Academy Awards, as he's doing like all the MC stuff for the Academy Awards, he says, Lord of the Rings received 11 nominations, one for each ending. (laughs) Because it was so long. And as I was reading our passage tonight, I felt a similar way about the story that we're looking at. Because... The story of Abraham is like a banger, right? Like, I mean, if you look, you think about the story of Abraham, it's like used throughout all the rest of the Bible. I mean, it's a timeless story. It contains all these personal interactions that Abraham has with God. It has, it's a a story that contains controversy. So Abraham, he lies to two prominent kings of his day. These thoughts, these fabricated stories, these lies that he brings up about his wife, Sarah, so that he can escape from his fear of man. It's also a story that contains war. Abraham, he goes and saves and rescues his nephew, Lot, not just from one king, but multiple kings. Like a bad dude. He rides in, these kings have just kicked butt, and then Abraham rides in, it's just him and his 4,400 men, and he's like riding in, he comes and he rescues his nephew Lot, and the dude, Abraham's old, he's old, and he comes in and does this, it's like, dang, that's awesome, and then you have this cataclysmic disaster that happens, you have Sodom and Gomorrah, that happens in the middle of Abraham's story, I mean, everybody knows about Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, these are, this is a banger, Story, And if we're the ones that's telling the story, it ends last week, not this week. Last week, we looked at the story where the son is born. Abraham and Isaac give birth to a son. And this, this birth is miraculous. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 years old whenever Isaac comes on the scene. Most of us aren't even going to see those ages And here they are, and God is giving them a brand new son at the ripe age of 190. It's also a redemptive story. Isaac's name means he laughs. When God shows up in Abraham and Sarah's life, what do they do? They laugh because they doubt and they disbelieve what God has promised, that he's going to provide them a son. And what happens in this story? Isaac receives his name, and it's redemptive. You laughed, 
but now I turn your laughter of doubt into a laughter of joy because I fulfilled my promise. And then it has finality. Ishmael's driven out. It's no longer a threat that the son that will come from Sarah is going to be the one that the family line runs through. Abraham's family line runs through Isaac, not through Ishmael. And so God keeps his promise. If we're writing the story, this is where the story ends. Instead, we get tonight's story about a water well. For real? I mean, Moses, do you know anything about writing a good story? Right? Like, a water well? Like, why didn't you end last week? Well, here's what's happening. What we have witnessed last week was God kept his promise, providing Abraham and Sarah a son. And in tonight's passage, we witness the early signs of God keeping his promise of land. Here's what Genesis 13, what God promises Abraham in verses 14 and 15. He says, look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west. For I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. Abraham and Lot. Their whole entire households have grown too big for where they're staying. Abraham gives Lot the first choice. Lot chooses the, what looks like the best property of all the land that can be seen. And then this is the promise that comes to Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you land. Land so far and rich that you can't even measure it. And in tonight's passage, we see Abraham obtain rights to pieces of this property. As Kara read for us, the property is named Beersheba. Beersheba would become the southern boundary of the promised land that God would give to his people Israel. That happens through the story tonight. And so this is a big deal. And this is where the connection to the Lord of the Rings breaks down because, sorry y'all, this is a big deal. That part of the story fails, right? (laughs) You're not laughing with me. That's okay. I find it funny. In the midst of God's provision, here's what we see in a number of things that happen in the story we're looking at tonight. We see that God is always at work. The way that God gives the very beginning seeds of the fulfilled promise of the land, we see that God is always at work here. We also see, too, Abraham's maturing. We're going to dive into that. We're going to wrestle with that. This is really important for us. We also see that Abraham, what Moses tells us is that Abraham is living as an alien in the land. This has implications for us. And so we're going to spend our time looking at these aspects of the story. We're going to end with just a few concluding questions for us of like, how can we apply what we see in this story to our life today as we think about as we leave this place? What does it look like for us? to wrestle with what God is doing in this passage and how he's still at work in our lives today. And here's my prayer as we leave, that we will leave with a greater awareness of how God is at work in our life and in this world. That God is at work in your life and in this world and that God would open the eyes of our hearts to see the way that he's at work. God is moving, he's working He's doing things in your life. He's doing things in the, what seems like the most minuscule circumstances that are taking place in the day-to-day. And my prayer is that God would grow us in an awareness of how he is at work, what he's doing. And so 
for us to do this, um, we need to start with how God is at work in this passage. We see it in verses 22, 22 through 23. So here's what's going on. The story begins with Abimelech. Uh, Abimelech is the king of Genesis chapter 20. He brings Phicol. What a name. All right, we're a young church. I hope somebody, somebody names their kid Phicol at some point. Um, he's the commander of Abimelech's army. And they both come to visit Abraham. It starts out with around that time. So it's at the same time whenever Isaac is born that this whole entire thing takes place. And so Abimelech says to Abraham in verse 22, God is with you and everything you do. Swear to me by God here and now that you will not break an agreement with me or with my children and their descendants as I have been loyal to you which he has legs to stand on because if you read Genesis chapter 20, he's kind in the way that he responds to Abraham even though he's been lied to. And so you will be loyal to me and to the country where you are a resident alien. What we need to notice here is that God is at work in these verses. All right, So Abraham doesn't summon Abimelech to come to him. What happens in this story is Abimelech observes the favor of God that God has shown towards Abraham. We see this in the beginning of verse 20. God is with you in everything you do. So this recognition starts in Abimelech's life in Genesis chapter 20. God interrupts Abimelech's life through a prophetic dream. Abimelech and his household have experienced sickness God tells why Abimelech why he's, their household has experienced sickness. It's because he's taken Sarah as his wife. He says, I haven't allowed you to go in and be intimate with her. That's been my thing, not your thing. And what you need to do is you need to give Sarah back to Abraham. And so Abimelech goes and he's like, why have you done this to me? And so he gives him a huge, huge inheritance. He gives him a lot of things. Abraham prays on behalf of Abimelech and God removes all of the sickness that's in the household. And so Abimelech has experienced the favor of God that's on Abraham very personally. And it continues here because he's seen the birth of Isaac. He looks at what God has done in Abraham's life. The dude's 100 years old. His wife is 90. He's like, this is the work of God. God is clearly favored Abraham in all that he does. And so in the re response to this, he shows up. Abraham doesn't call for Abimelech. Abimelech recognizes that God is doing something in his life. But then you also see that it leads Abimelech to pursue a peace treaty with Abraham. Now, what you need to see here is Abimelech is the one that's a king. Abimelech is the one with a people. Yet he is the one that comes to Abraham pursuing a peace treaty. He's the one that comes with fear in his heart. So much so that he brings Phicol, who's the commander of his army, with him to this meeting. If you're not going to up the ante anymore, like if you want to up the ante, what do you do? You bring the head of your army because you want to strike a deal with somebody that you're worried is a threat to you. And that's exactly what happens here. Abraham doesn't summon Abimelech. Abimelech comes because he sees that God's favor rests on Abraham. He's at work here. And so the takeaway for us 
is for us to recognize like this is God at work here in this passage. And if God is doing this, we see all that he's done throughout redemptive history. We see what he's doing in our our day-to-day life. We have to recognize that God is still one at work. Okay? So look, anytime someone's eyes are opened to acknowledge that the favor of God rests on somebody, that means that God is doing something. Nobody apart from the work of God, is able to recognize the favor that comes from the God of the heavens that rests on human beings here in this world without divine intervention. It just doesn't happen. We are people that are caught up so much in our sin that apart from the divine intervention of God, we cannot see the work of his hand. But Abimelech in this story recognizes that God is doing something in Abraham. He recognizes that God is at work. A lot of times we can't see it, but we need to recognize in this story that even whenever we have a hard time of making the the connections, connecting the dots of how God is at work, we need to be reminded that he's always at work, even if we don't see it, especially when it seems like it's just behind the scenes. We have whole books of the Bible that are devoted to trying to show that God is at work. When we can't see it, God is always at work, especially when it seems like it's just behind the scenes. This is what the whole book of Job is about. Job has the favor of God that rests on him. It's all stripped away. He has no idea why. The whole entire book is just a wrestle with what is God doing? God finally shows up. And he rebukes Job, and he says, I basically have been at work behind the scenes the whole entire time. None of this has been happenstance. This is all well within my control. I have been at work the entire time. This is what the whole book of Esther is about. Most of the book of Esther is absent of the name of God. You know why? Because the whole book is trying to point out to us that even when we can't see God at work with our very own eyes, it's a reminder to us that he is always at work, especially behind the scenes. God is at work. So look, the problem for us, it's not that God, a question of whether God is at work or not, it's whether we have the awareness to see God's hand at work here in this world. That's where our problem resides, all right? We claim to be spiritual. If you look at research, there's a place called Pew Research, P-E-W. They have done work where they have questioned a number of Americans. They did did a summary. They went out to the streets, asked 2,000 Americans, would they consider themselves spiritual? Seven in 10 claim to be so. However, we don't function like it. We do not live as if we are spiritual people. Whenever it comes to our Western civilization, we like to find answers or conclusions to most of the questions that we have in this day and age. And we're pretty good at it. So we have statements, we have phrases, things like this that say, like when we think about money, what do we say? There's nothing that money cannot fix. Now you may like frown at that, but the functionality of your life would oftentimes back that up 
You have things that pop up in your life, financial crises that happens. Like, what do you do? It's like, well, go find the money in order to fix it. This is how we live. Whenever you have like problems that are going on with your body, what do we do? We try to find the supplement that we need. What, what are we lacking? What, is our, what vitamin is our body lacking? What chemical can we add to our body that will fix the issue? What medication can we go find? I mean, medicine is a grace from God, yes, but a lot of times, what does our dependency lie on? It lies on the things of this world, not on God's uh, work in our life. When we, we have a problem when it comes to like property issues or things of like, we're always looking for a reference. Who do I go talk to about this? Who, who's going to fix this? Who's the alderman from my area that's going to fix all the potholes? Like, what, what are all the, who are the people that I need to find a connection to that are going to fix the problems here in this life? What do we do? We are, it's so few and far between that our regular response is, I'm going to pray first. I believe that I have God that works in this life, that I'm going to go pursue the one that I know holds all things in his hands, and instead I'm just going to go try to find the right fix by human means. That's what our common first response is. What do we see in Genesis 21? We see a God that is at work. Abraham's not bringing Abimelech. He's not the one that's trying to strike this peace treaty. He's not the one that's living in a sense of fear of Abimelech and Phicol and all the people. No, God is doing something. God is at work in the midst of human history. He opens up the eyes of just a, a normal man. Helps him see Things that are happening in Abraham's life that honestly, if you really, if you look at the story of Abraham, a lot of times Abraham can't even see it. Abimelech's eyes are open to it. He acknowledges where the favor lies from. He draws near to Abraham, tries to, tries to strike a peace treaty. Here's what Mother Teresa says. It was easier to deal with poverty and death in India than the lack of spirituality in America. This is, this, is our, this is like true of us. We claim to be spiritual, but whenever it comes to our day-to-day -day life, we act as if there is no God. So here's the response. We keep watch. We ask that God would grow our awareness in recognizing how he is at work in this world and in our life. We go pleading. God, would you open my eyes to see how you are at work in my life, in my city, in my family, in my workspace, in my neighborhood. Like, we go and we plead that God would allow the eyes of our heart to be opened to see the ways that he is at work. Here's a paradigm for us, all right? God is always at work. Here's, here's how we can recognize this, all right? Oftentimes, it's confirmed in the past tense. While at the same time, we live with the possibility that it's at work in the present tense. All right? So the way that you can confirm that God is at work is you look not through the windshield, but through the rearview mirror. You look at your story. You look at your life. 
the things that God and the transpiring of your life, you look at the rearview mirror, you look at what's happened, and you look at it and you ask, God, where have you been at work? What have you done in my life? And if, if you look back, there are things, there are going to be patterns and connections that happen in your life that is like, man, that clearly had to be God. I mean, there's stories in my life that I look, my family moved a handful of times at very significant points of like growing up. And I can just see ways that God pulled me out of relationships that would have led to my destruction. I can see how God led me to right relationships that set me forward, not just in lifelong friendships and relationships. I mean, I can look at it in my own marriage. I can see ways that God led me to right relationships that helped me grow in my walk with Jesus. Like God was at work. You look at it, you find this by looking in the rearview mirror and seeing how God has been connecting the dots in your life and it's confirmed in the past tense. But at the same time, you are always keeping watch, looking for it in the present tense. All right, so here's what we don't wanna be. We don't wanna be the drowning man. You've probably heard this story, all right? So in the midst of a flood, there's a guy that climbs up on his rooftop and he starts praying to God, God, would you work? God, would you work and would you come save me? And so he's standing on the top of his roof. The waters are rising. There's a guy in a rowboat that comes and he's like, hey, do you need help? And the guy's like, hey, I've prayed. I've asked God to come and divinely intervene in my life. He's gonna do a work in me. And so it's okay, God's gonna show up. And so as the guy goes off in the rowboat, time goes on, the water continues to rise, and then it, what happens is you see a motorboat that comes by. And the guy's like, hey, do you need any help? And the guy's like, no, I prayed. I'm a Christian. I'm mature. I believe that God is going to save me. It's okay. He's going to show up. Thanks anyway. So the water continues to rise. I mean, it's at, it's at the rooftop, right? It's like at his knees. It's like, this is getting really close. At this point in time, a helicopter comes by. He's like, hey, do you need any help? He's like, no, I believe God's going to work. I prayed. I believe that God is going to work in my life. Thanks, but no thanks. He's going to come and save me. And obviously, he ends up drowning, all right? Now, he does believe in Jesus, and so he goes to see Jesus face to face as he passes away from this life into the next. And he goes like, Jesus, I prayed. Like, why didn't you come and work? And he's like, well, I, I sent the rowboat, I sent the motorboat, and I sent the helicopter. We don't want to be the person that's so blind that we don't see the way that God is providing and he's at work in our life. We always are functioning and we're asking, we're pleading, God, would you open the eyes of my heart to see the way that you're at work in this world, in my life, in my city, in my community. Would you open the eyes of my heart? I can't see it apart from your divine intervention. Would you come and would you open the eyes of my heart? We look at our story, we look in the rearview mirror, can see that it and confirm that God has been at work by looking in our past. But look, we are always living with the possibility. He's alive and he still works in this day. I'm going to plead that he would do it. So here's what the practice of this looks like. We work with strong work ethic. Like we, we work really hard. God uses your work. It's not that you just sit back and just wait for God to do something. No, you, what you see throughout the Bible is that God calls us to do everything as if God is watching. We do everything to the greatest excellence that we possibly can, yet at the same time, we live with deep dependence. We pray that God would be uniquely at work in our life, working behind the scenes, connecting the dots in ways that we can't do it in and of ourselves, and then you keep a watchful eye. 
You look, you ask, you plead, and then you work at growing in the practice of seeing how God is at work in your life. Because look, he is. He is. He promises that he will never leave you, forsake you, that he is constantly at work in this world. We want to pray and grow in our awareness that we see it. We see it in Genesis 21. We want to grow in it in our life too. So that's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is that Abraham is a growing man. He is maturing, all right? So here's what we see in verse 24 and 25. In response to uh, Abimelech, as Abimelech comes and asks for a treaty, Abraham says, I swear it. He's saying, yes, I will. Let's do this. Verse 25 says, but Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well that Abimelech's servants had ceased. And so in response to this, Abraham gives Abimelech some flocks and some herds is what we see in the verses that follow. On top of this, Abraham gives Abimelech seven ewe lambs. What's going on there? That's what Abimelech asks. He says, what are the seven ewe lambs for? Like, I love the dialogue here. It's like just very like abrupt, you know? It's like, what is this for? Why seven ewe lambs? And so Abraham responds in verse 30. He replied, you are to accept the seven ewe lambs from me so that this act will serve as my witness that I dug this well. He's saying like, hey, I'm giving you all these flocks and these herds, but then I have this separate seven ewe lambs, and these are set aside as a payment to show you, to prove to you, to buy this well to show that it, it was me who dug it and it's gonna belong to me. And so what happens from there is that they agree on this pact. They call the place Beersheba. Beersheba means uh, a covenant of seven that's rem- like is uh, symbolizing the seven ewe lambs that are given here. The two of them swore to this oath. Abimelech and Phicol, they pick up there, they feel like this has done justice to what they've come to Abraham for because they return back to the land of the Philistines. And so here's what we see here, all right? We see Abraham's growth. First, we see that Abraham possesses clarity and courage. Let me show you this, all right? So Abimelech approaches Abraham about this treaty. In previous stories, as you look back at Abraham's life, when it comes to dealing with authority figures, more often than not, he's functioning out of a fear of man, not out of a sense of boldness or courage. Before he even gets to these kings, he's devising lies and plans in his life because he fears for his life. But what you see here with Abimelech is that Abraham demonstrates godly courage. He's both clear and direct regarding the grievance of the will. He says, yes, I'm going to agree to this treaty, this peace treaty that you want. Yes, I think it's a good direction for us to go. But immediately after it, he, he declares to Abimelech, um, he complains to him. This is like a, hey, I'm bringing this up. I'm not going to give this up. Because the well that Abimelech's servants had ceased from him. He says, he's, he's going to Abimelech, and he's saying with, very, with courage and clarity, hey, this well belongs to me. If we're going to strike up a treaty, then we need to work through our grievances here. It's very direct. It's very clear. This is not something that you see normally in Abraham's life. What we need to see here is that oftentimes, life with Christ 
means that we deal with healthy, healthy confrontation in order that we can actually live in peace with one another. This is not the way that Abraham has functioned in previous stories, but we see a difference here in Abraham. Wisdom is godly understanding applied in God's way. Godly understanding applied in God's way. In previous stories, we see Abraham lacks wisdom and foresight. You see this in the story with Sarah coming and suggesting that Abraham take Hagar and that they have a son together in order to bring about God's promises in their way. What does Abraham do? He just goes along with the plan. Here, we see that Abraham exercises wisdom and foresight. He has godly discernment in the way that he deals with Abimelech. He provides the animals in order to finalize the covenant. All right, so he gives them flocks and herds. Why is he doing this? He's doing this because in order for you to strike a covenant, usually there was a sacrifice that solidified the covenant that made it true for both parties, something that they're gonna hold themselves to. Abraham is providing the flocks, he's providing the herds in order that the covenant can actually be finalized. And then he offers sufficient payment for the well, which secures the well as Abraham's property. As we said earlier, Beersheba ends up becoming the southern property of the promised land that God gives to the people of Israel. So there's growth that's happening in Abraham's life. The way that he has lived before, God has grown him up in maturity in the way that he lives and he functions in this world. Now, here's what we need to notice. Abraham finally demonstrates this maturity at the ripe old age of 100 years old. (laughs) He's 100. Here's what we need to take away. It is never too late for us to grow and mature in this life. It's never too late. You are never beyond growing and maturity in order for you to look more and more like Jesus. The mark of a Christian, uh, mark of a, a mature Christian, is that they are both courageous and curious. And here's why a mature Christian lives in the tension between two realities they are secure in Christ. Justification, the work that Christ has done for us, is a definitive work. All right? So no one can remove you from Jesus' grasp because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He's on the throne in heaven. This is what we see. This is Ephesians 2. This is Romans chapter 8, right? So Jesus, we are raised up with him and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 2, 6. You see Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's nothing that can take you out of his grasp. You are secure in your position and in your relationship with God because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. So you have that confidence but it also goes with that you are always growing because sanctification is a lifetime's work. No one has arrived in this life. No one becomes fully like Jesus until we see him face to face. I mean, this is Colossians 3, that whenever we see Jesus, we we will be caught up in glory. We will be made like him. That doesn't happen 
until we go see Jesus face to face. A mature Christian lives in the reality and in the tension of both of those things. I am secure in Jesus, yet at the same time, my growth to look like him is a lifetime's work. It takes Abraham 100 years to get to some of these realities in his own life. You are never beyond the point of growth and maturity in your life. A lot of us like to think that we have arrived in certain spots. But the truth of the reality is you always have room to grow to be more like Jesus. You have not arrived. I don't care how far you've come from where you were, where you are now. Look, there's always a maturing work that Jesus is doing in your life. So in a society that's insecure and defensive, We want to be confident and curious. We want to be confident, all right? We want to be a people that believe the truth of God's word so much that we never apologize for what we see in the scriptures, but rather we speak the truth in love. We want to be confident. This doesn't mean that you're a jerk, all right? Here's what it looks like, all right? You want to be more like a doctor than you are a butcher, all right? Both have sharp objects. What does a doctor do? They're willing to make a small incision, a small wound, and for your healing, a butcher is just chopping up body parts. There's speaking truth, but it's not with love. (laughs) We want to be like a doctor. Like, look, you are willing to speak the truth, but it's always out of tender, loving care towards somebody because you want to see them made well. And you're confident you never back down from the truth that we see in God's word, but you're always doing it in Christ's way. You follow his pattern. But you're also curious. In the face of critique or criticism, look, you're going to receive it. It's going to come your way. Especially in the harshest critique, when it's like, man, I just, this is over the top. Here's what you can do, all right? You can ask, is there just a small, tiny morsel of what this person is saying? Maybe their tone is way off. Maybe most of what they're claiming about my life is not true, but is there just the smallest morsel of truth in what they're bringing to me? All right, here's why we do this, all right? This type of humility is one of the marks of the Christian giants that you see in this life. So I've I've read through uh, the biography of, you've heard me talk about Tim Keller. You know how much I love him. So obviously I read his biography. And here's what people said regularly about Tim Keller. He was very much on the platform when it came to sharing like Christian faith, engaging with those that are skeptics. And there was oftentimes lots from multiple different directions, critique and criticism that was coming his way. Here's what all of those that were closest to him would regularly say. Keller would very often look at those that were lobbing critiques at him, and he would find the smallest morsel of truth of what they might say to him in order that he can move forward in peace and love. So this was what... Like the author says, he would regu- this is what Keller would regularly say. I think you're right about, and then he would like fill in the blank with the critique and criticism that he was getting. Like he was, all, like he was so confident about his position in Christ, what people's thoughts 
and opinions about him did not matter. He was so confident in his placement with Christ because of what Jesus has done on his behalf. Yet at the same time, he was always curious. What's the smallest thing that may be true about what this person is saying, even though they're way off base about all these other things? How can I be curious in order that I may pursue and live in peace with other people? That's what you see. This is marks of Christian maturity. It is never too late. You're never beyond hope. You've never outgrown as much as you think you may be mature in your life. There's always opportunities for us to grow into the likeness of Jesus. And so we're always confident, yet we're always curious in order that we can live into the work that God is doing in our life. We want to have eyes that are open to see the ways that God is at work, but we also want to be receptive to how he needs to work in our life. That's the second thing we see. The third one. We talked about how Abraham is an alien. We see this in verses 33 through 34. So Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham lived as an alien in the land in the Philistines for many days. Here's the best summary I think that you can summarize of what is uh, being described about Abraham's life here in these two verses is that Abraham lives by faith. This is what it means that Abraham is an alien. He's a, for, he's a foreigner. He's a stranger. First, Abraham's response to the covenant with Abimelech is worship. That's what you see in verse 33. The tamarisk tree that Abraham plants, why would he do that? Why would he plant a tamarisk tree? Well, most biblical scholars say that he's doing this because he's understanding that he lives under God's shade of protection. This is symbolic for the way that God has been at work in his life. I'm going to plant a tree. Because I see the way that God has provided his shade of protection over my life. And this is a symbolic act that shows the way that God has been at work in my life. And then what you get is a new name here for God. Abraham, in the midst of planting the tamarisk tree, he calls on the name of God. And we get a new name, the everlasting God. He's saying, God is always at work. There's never a point in time that he is not working. I see it. I look through the rearview mirror. I see the ways that he's at work here. So his response is worship to the covenant that is struck with Abimelech, recognizing that this is actually God's hand that's been at work in my life and in this situation. And then second, you see that Abraham lives with the future, trust in the fulfillment of God's promise. Abraham lived as an alien in the land of the Pharisee or the Pharisees, the Philistines. This is New Test the New Testament writers borrow language from this particular passage, and they're often attaching it to our everyday life in this world right here and now. One of the best uh, ways that you can see that throughout the New Testament is Hebrews chapter eleven. This is the Hall of Faith. Starting in verse 13, here's what it says those who believed in Christ are foreigners and temporary residents on earth, clearly drawing from Abraham's story. They're seeking a homeland. This world is not their home. They're seeking their final destination. They desire a better place, a heavenly one, where God dwells with man. And the last verse says, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Here's our takeaway. Not oftentimes can we say this, but in this story we can. We need to follow Abraham's example here. Our response 
to the way God has been at work in our life should be like Abraham's, that our response is that of worship. When we see God at work in our life, it is right for our response to call in the name of God and for us to respond in ways that show him and give him credit for the ways that he's been at work in your life. Here's, why, here's what this can look like, all right? It's your first response is prayer, and then you're really good at celebrating. You really are good at celebrating and having moments of joy that are a response of delight for the way that God has been at work in your life. We see this in Abraham's life here, but we see it more fully in Jesus. Whenever Jesus prayed, God acted, and this is why, why the disciples came to him and asked, will you teach us how to pray? God was at work whenever Jesus would pray, and the disciples could clearly see it. They got opened their eyes to see the way that God would work in the midst of praying in his name. And so, look, the disciples' response is like, teach us how to pray then. The way that you work in this world, whenever you pray, we want that to be our experience too. And look, whenever God does work in your life, it is right, it is worshipful for your response not to be like, man, I guess I really figured it out. I guess I've like really sharpened my skills and I've known how to speak to particular people to where I gain their attention or maybe I've really escalated on the totem pole or I've climbed the ladder to where my voice really matters within the company now or I have really figured out what brings change in the life of other people. Maybe more likely is that God has been at work and he deserves your worship. And then in response to recognizing and seeing that God's been at work and you give him the praise through prayer that he deserves, look, you're really good at celebrating. This is what, we see this in Jesus' life. Like his reputation was he was always the life of the party. Whenever he comes and he interrupts Zacchaeus' life and Zacchaeus comes down, what happens? What breaks out after he goes to Zacchaeus' house? It's a party. People are having a great time. <laughs> like this is Jesus, his reputation is he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners and he would eat and he would drink and he would be merry. I think one of the best ways that you can give glory to God for the way that he is at work in your life is that you grow really, really well at throwing good parties. You go get ice cream whenever like there's a promotion that happens, like this is God. Like when you see God answer prayers in your life or in the, the lives of your friends, like you go out to eat and you're like, this was the work of God. When your kid gets an a, like a, a on the test that you've worked really, really hard on, you've pled that God would do a work in their life because it's like, I don't know how they're gonna pass this test and it happens, you're like, we're going out. This is amazing. Like God has been, like, man, we should be the most joyful, celebratory people on the face of the earth. May it be so. And then secondly, we live by faith. Because here's the reality. You are a sojourner on a journey to your final destination because this place is not your home. Translation, 
This world isn't your home, so we shouldn't treat it like it is. So this means on the path to our, our final destination that we adopt the attitude of our Savior and not the society. You see this in First Peter 2 when he says you are foreigners and strangers in this land. He says your life should look different. The things uh, and the desires of your flesh, your old way of living, should no longer be the way that you live in this world. Instead, you put on the likeness of Jesus. The life that we see Christ live in this world is now the life that you put on. It's your regular practice that you live into the life that Christ has given you. You no longer carry out the desires of your flesh, your former way of life in this world. You adopt the life of Jesus. But then secondly, you use God-given resources for eternal purposes and not temporary pleasures. You do not look at your resources in the same light that you did before you came to Jesus. You recognize that all that you have are actually God's resources that are given to you to use for his eternal purposes. And look, it is used for us to experience temporary pleasure, but that's not the top of our priority list. It's now that we want to see our resources used for the advancement of his kingdom. They're not, they do not have to be exclusive from one another, but there is a priority list. The things that God has given us, we use for his eternal purposes, and that often comes with our delight and our pleasure, but we do not flip it. We live as people of faith. I have a, a guy, um, he was one of the first pastor, pastors that I really like that took me under his wing um, in the previous church that I worked at. His name was Chad Lewis. And uh, Chad Lewis, like he was just this godly sage. Whenever he would speak up, people would listen. All right, Not, and This wasn't because he was like a great orator. He was just a really, really godly man. And he was a guy that his first response was much like Abraham. And he was definitely like he was trying to model Jesus that, man, anytime something good happened in his life, he was regularly running to prayer. Hey, we need to thank God for this. This is clearly the work of God in our, our day and time. And like we need to give him the worship that he deserves. But like he was also really good at celebrating. Like he would regularly bring in food to staff meetings like if something happened good in your life, he's like, we're going to get coffee. And it was like, yes, because I was very, very poor. <laughs> like he would regularly, was like, hey, uh, let's just go grab lunch. And it's like, what's the occasion? He's like, just because God's good. And like we'd go get lunch. And it, he was such a godly man. But then he also lived in what he called wartime mentality. He would live on what he the minimum amount of what he could so that he could give away the most that he could to kingdom advancement. He loved giving away and supporting missionaries. He loved supporting church plants. He loved doing and supporting with the resources that God had given him in order that he could see the kingdom advance. He was driving a gold Toyota Camry that he had to have a shoelace that he put for the door handle because the door handle broke off. Like he regularly, he wouldn't fill it up with gas all the way because he's like, I don't know if it's going to make it to the next full tank. 
But it was his joy to drive around a clunker because he knew that God had given him the resources that he had and it was his delight in order to give it away to see the kingdom advance. He lived by faith. He also worshiped at the sight of God's work. Look, we see all this in Genesis chapter 21. It looks different in our life here and now than in what it looks like in Abraham's life, but most of everything that we've gone over here in this chapter, look, he's still doing in your life. We want to grow an awareness of it. I want to know and see with better sight than I was a year ago, five years ago, the way that God is at work in this world. I want my life to look more like Jesus. And so I'm going to be confident. I'm going to be curious. I want to be a sojourner in this world that worships at any time I see God's work in this life, but I also want to live by faith. Adopt God's attitude. Adopt the idea that I have a wartime mentality. I use God's resources for eternal purposes and not temporary pleasures. Look, this is no throwaway passage. This is not those extra things that are snuck into the Lord of the Rings movie that are just throwaway details. This is very important for what God is doing over the course of redemptive history. So here's some final questions. Close it out, all right? Here's some questions that you can ask for your week as we leave this place tonight. First, where is God at work around me? How can I look back in my life to see how God has been at work in my life, but what do I need to do in terms of opening my eyes with the work of God in my life in order to recognize the work that he's doing here now? Second, where is God calling me to be courageous and curious? Where do I need to step out with boldness in my life? Where do I also need to be curious? Where are things, where are places in my life that I have not grown in the way that I would like to see and it may be because you haven't been curious? Where do I need to be curious in my own life so that I can see my life begin to look more and more like Jesus? And then lastly, where is God inviting me to live by faith? I understand that it's scary to think about like praying something that I'm going to, I'm going to pray for something so large that it seems like I just don't know if God could actually do this. Or living with, in a way that you're going to give away more than you ever have before because you long to see the work of God advance. Look, ministry requires resources. It does. And maybe there's people in your life that it's like, I've just kind of been giving them the skim off the top rather than living with sacrificial giving, trusting that God's going to continue to provide for me. Living by faith has been minimal. What if God's invitation for you is that he's asking you to step into more sacrifice? Because God is faithful. God is faithful. <sighs> Y'all, I want us to grow with living in an awareness that God is at work in this world, that God is at work in this life. He's grown you progressively to look more like Jesus, that he's calling us to live a life of sacrifice. This is not our home. He has a final destin destination for us that he's gonna bring us there because Jesus is coming back. He's gonna be the one that brings heaven to earth. God will dwell with man. That is our eternal hope. That is our destination. That is our future. So look, that should propel the way that we live here and now. And may God grow us in the awareness.
that we can live with Christ here and now. We can recognize his work. We can look more like Jesus. And we can pursue life differently here in this world. We see that in Genesis 21. That's your invitation here tonight as well. Let's pray.